0: Welcome to a Kessler Foundation podcast. The Foundation is a global leader in rehabilitation research that seeks to improve cognition, mobility, and long-term outcomes, including employment for people with neurological disabilities caused by diseases and injuries of the brain and spinal cord. In this episode, we are talking with Dr. Nancy Ciaverlotti. She is the director of the Center for Neuropsychology and Neuroscience Research and the Center for Traumatic Brain Injury Research at Kessler Foundation. She spoke with Rob Gerth, the foundation's communications director. So Nancy, I did a little
1: homework on you. I did I didn't hmm. to be, and, and I found out you were from, you went to undergrad at Muhlenberg College. I did. Which I'm fascinated by uh, because I live in the Lehigh Valley. Easton, oh, downtown really? Bethlehem. I didn't grow up there, but I've lived the last fifteen years. And we were there. just
2: there last weekend for a baseball tournament. Ah,
1: well, I should have given you my number, and you could have stopped in. But are you from that area?
2: No, I'm not. I'm actually originally from Bayonne, which is where I still live right now. I actually live thirty blocks from where I grew up. Oh, that's funny. So I just I ended up going to Muhlenberg College because we were looking for a college nearby that would give, would give me a good liberal arts education. And when I visited it, I fell in love with it, so.
1: Well, the Lehigh Valley's great and the it's campus beautiful. is beautiful, yeah. Uh, so, so did you have scientists in your family or?
2: Interestingly, no. My interest in neuroscience developed when I was in college. I took several courses in science as well as in psychology. One of my courses in psychology was on sensation and perception. And I was really fascinated by cognition and how cognition worked how we thought about things, how we remembered things. And as I pursued that, I really developed a very intense interest in memory and what memory was about and how we improve memory. And that's where my career, I guess, flourished from.
1: Did you, did any of it come from like, you, you thought your memory wasn't good or, or people in your family didn't have a good memory for one reason or another, whether it was a condition or not?
2: That's a really good question. Not to my awareness, I think, As a student, particularly in college, you're always looking to improve your memory. You're always looking for strategies that help you when you're studying and trying to remember new information. So I think I was always looking for things to help me remember things better, not because my memory was not good, but because I wanted it to be better. And I think that's one of the driving factors and why I'm so interested in memory and why I continue to be interested in memory today. But it it was not solely that. It was really driven by an interest in the brain and how the brain worked.
1: And that was all undergraduate? You, you, that was all it wasn't high school it was it was
2: no it was all undergraduate when I went into graduate school I knew I was interested in science and math and I really didn't know beyond that what I wanted to
1: do. Oh before we get to uh, postgraduate things uh, I, I did make a note that you married your high school sweetheart, which made me think that's why you picked Muhlenberg. It was far enough away, but not too far away. Is that so? What a great story!
2: Tell me the story. It is a great story. It's a long story. It started when we were 14. We met in high school. Wow. And my current husband was actually my first boyfriend. My first date, very you know, very innocent, sweet relationship when we were 14 years old. We broke up about six months after we started dating, Aww. and we dated other people through high school, through college. We always remained friends. And we ended up dating again when I, when we were in graduate school. Once again, it didn't work out. We didn't We weren't at the same place. We broke up, dated other people again, and then we ended up dating again when I was in my fourth year of graduate school, starting my internship, and he had just finished law school. And at that point, that's when the relationship flourished. We were both kind of in the same place and ready to to move forward. And that's when we we were engaged about six
1: months later. Oh wow! What a great history though you had to fall back on. We know each
2: front. other's families very very well. I can imagine. So we we knew exactly what we were getting into. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and I like how you call him your current husband.
2: Yes, well, my current and only husband. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so. Uh, Let's talk about uh, what you did then post Muhlenberg. You uh, went to the Medical College of Pennsylvania, Hahnemann University. How did you pick that? Is that same location based or?
2: At the time when I was applying to graduate school, I knew I was interested in neuropsychology. There were only about eight or 10 programs in the, ca- in the country that specialized in neuropsychology. There were a lot of psychology PhD programs But there were very little that provided a subspecialty in neuropsychology. And that's what I wanted. I wanted my PhD in psychology with a specialization in neuropsychology. I wanted that for a couple of reasons. First, I wanted the clinical skills so that I was efficient, well-trained at working with patients. But I also wanted that neuroscience emphasis because that's what I was really interested in. So I really didn't have a lot to choose from. I applied to many programs across the nation, I interviewed in Florida, and I interviewed in Philadelphia. So I, was, I, I had two different interviews. And in the end, I did not want to go down to Florida. It was just, it's just too—I'm I'm very close to my family. I had the opportunity in Philadelphia, so that's the one that I pursued. So it was a good program, and that's, it offered me what I was really looking for.
1: And you went into the clinical side— you started in the clinical side, but you ended up in the research side. Was that always the plan? Or no. were,
2: what was <laughs> that was never what, the was plan. Was the plan
1: to have like your own little shop and you would open, You had a little shingle and you would see patients? Is that the
2: plan was actually to work. I always wanted to work in a hospital on a hospital floor with patients who either had multiple sclerosis, traumatic brain injury, any neurological disorders for which you would evaluate cognition and help people to improve their cognitive functioning. My thought was that I would always be in that type of a setting and that I might do research on the side. However, when I graduated from my PhD program, I felt like I had a lot of clinical training, but I didn't feel that I had enough training to independently do research, despite the fact that I had finished a dissertation. So I sought research experience at the postdoctoral level. That's how I ended up at Kessler. Ah. I came here because I wanted to work with John DeLuca, I was interested in the work he was doing.
1: Which was MS work? It was MS
2: work. And I um, I came here. Once I arrived, I started writing research grants and I really enjoyed the research process. I ended up getting a grant funded and then another grant funded, and then, you know, I was I guess I was bitten with the research bug.
1: <laughs> and here it is, is it twenty years later? It's twenty
2: years later. July eleventh was twenty years.
1: Oh, congratulations. Happy Thank anniversary. You. <laughs> Thank cool. you. Uh, just a, a side note, because as we're recording this in uh, 2019, Hahnemann Hann- Hospital is closing. Uh, I guess you spent some time there, so that must be sort of sad for you.
2: I did. I spent a lot of time there. All of my classes were in the ad- the adjoining building, so mm-hmm. I was down on that campus all the time. I also did a research for a clinical rotation through the heart hospital. I was doing evaluations on the heart transplant unit, for about a year. So I spent a good deal of time over at the hospital. And then they also have a rehabilitation hospital right across the street, which is where I gained my first rehabilitation experience. And I spent two years there. So I have a lot of connections with the hospital. So it's very sad that they are closing, but in the age of healthcare, you know, you can't really predict what's going to happen anymore.
1: No and then did you you specialize now in particularly uh, tbi and, and and ms was there anything in your history that i kind of asked this question before but i'm asking it again sort of is, is there anything in your history that would have aimed you towards that anybody in your family that had a condition or
2: not really you know? it was it was really the my interest in the science of the brain and how the brain worked that got me initially involved once I was involved in with patients who had neurological conditions, it was then, it fed my desire to learn more because I really liked the patients that I worked with from the very beginning, whether it be when I was in grad school or, or when I was on internship. When I arrived here at Kessler, I, re- I started working with MS patients for the first time, patients with multiple sclerosis. And I have to say, that was a great population to be exposed to because I really identified with the population. The population of persons who have MS is generally two-thirds women. Mm. It also tends to be a younger, well-educated population, particularly those that volunteer for research or at least were volunteering at the time. So I think I felt a connection to the patients and I really enjoyed working with them and that fueled my interest in, in MS itself and really drove that part of my career.
0: Hmm.
1: Now, besides John uh, DeLuca, who I assume you would consider a mentor. Absolutely, still. How about through college? Was there anybody that influenced you?
2: I had a couple of really good professors in college that I think fed my desire to learn more about neuropsychology and neuroscience. I had a few really good teachers who emphasized experimental design. Dr. Alan Chelfate at, at Muhlenberg College Dr. Laura Snodgrass, Dr. Kathleen Haring, they were probably the three most influential people when I was in college that really drove my interest in statistics, my interest in perception and cognition, as well as my interest in research design. And I still remember many of the things that I was taught when I was in college. So those are still things that you you fall back on later in life, and you you remember them.
1: And then you've because as I said, I did a little homework, and you've gotten a couple of awards for being a, a mentor. You've flipped the table, then. Mm-hmm. Um, what's that like for you? How important is that? And you, I know it's important because you've gotten awards for it. So obviously, <laughs> it's important. But but why? How do you tell me about that experience of being a mentor?
2: I love being a mentor. I think mentorship is a lifelong experience on both sides. So I still consider John DeLuca my mentor, and I still when I have questions or when I'm stumped with something I still go to him and I ask his advice and I think our meetings while they are collegial in some respects they are still mentor mentee even though I'm this far in my career so mentorship is very important to me and I think it always will be as a mentor I spend a lot of time with my mentees and I really enjoy the experience I love the fact that we have a strong postdoctoral program here The mentees get a lot out of the program. They learn a lot. There are a lot of opportunities here in rehabilitation in general, as well as in cognition and cognitive rehabilitation specifically. But we also learn a lot from our mentees. They come to us with a wealth of information about the literature because they have just spent so much time in it throughout graduate school. They've read all the recent work in a lot of different areas. So they come with this bigger picture that we don't necessarily have because we focus a lot of our reading and a lot of our attendance at conferences. So they bring different perspectives, they bring different ideas, and over the years I've really seen that it's helped us grow our research. I spent a lot of time in one-on-one meetings with fellows, but even when we have scientists that either went through our fellowship program or didn't, I spent a lot of time in one-on-one meetings with the scientists, because I do see mentorship as a continual process. I continue to learn from them, they continue to learn from me, and we work together as a team. I think the team approach is really what works in science, particularly in rehabilitation.
1: And is there, I don't mean to call anybody out, but in your mentorship career, is there anybody out there that's like? Let me tell you about this person who's doing this now. Is there anybody like that?
2: There are a lot
1: of them. I would hate to. <laughs> I
2: would hate to mention any specific.
1: <laughs> leave somebody out. I know.
2: I would hate to leave anyone out, but it's really fascinating to to follow someone's professional career and know that you had a hand in it. Even some of our research assistants. So we hire a lot of research assistants who actually collect the data that we're acquiring. And our research assistants get a really great experience here. They're not necessarily here officially to learn, but they learn a lot while they are here. And some of them go on and become professionals in the field. And actually, one of our research assistants from, I would say, about seven or eight years ago, I just met at our most recent TBI model systems project directors meeting in Washington. And we were sitting next to each other as colleagues, at, you at know, this table of very influential researchers in, in TBI and it was great to see him there. It was great to have him there to see how far his career came and to know that he actually started as one of our research assistants it's
0: so, very rewarding that must have been
1: fun for both of you it really for it him really to be is. like look I'm sitting next <laughs> look to you where here. I am.
0: <laughs> <Yes>.
1: <laughs> so you came to Kessler just by progression of your education what keeps you here
2: I love the environment I love the family atmosphere. We've built an environment in which we really have a good time and we enjoy being with each other. But at the same time, we get a lot of work done and we're very productive. And I think those two things go hand in hand. I think as a team and as an organization, we're much more productive when we enjoy what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And when we're productive and we're proud of what we do and we're proud of our team approach, I think then we really enjoy being with each other more. So that's really what keeps me here. It's the environment. It's the friendships I've built, the colleagues that I have. But it's also the work. There are a lot of rewarding things about the work that I do. When you see that you have X dollars in grant funding or you have all these publications, it's obviously very rewarding, and that's what the field counts as success. But I think more importantly, when you sit down at a consumer conference and you talk to some of the people who are benefiting from your research and they say, you know, hey, I really liked that program you developed. It really made me feel better. That's tremendously rewarding. That's what really keeps you going because you've really made an impact on someone. And it's nice to to hear that and hear it more than once because you really feel like you're you're – you're changing the world, even in a very small way.
1: Yeah, probably bigger way than you think or that you know. I apologizing. I'm going to read this. So, so your research cuts across spinal cord injury, traumatic brain injury, MS, dementia, uh, and you look at things that um, have to do with memory, employment, aging, fatigue, depression, and you test the efficacy of things like aerobic exercises and memory techniques and even This is the one was like, I I wasn't you, but I was talking to somebody else and they were saying, oh yeah, this matters. Whether you're recovering within your culture that you're used to, or whether you're recovering outside of your culture that has an effect, or at least you're studying the effect that that has, uh, on recovery. How do you, how do you, did, did you always know, first of all, that what you wanted to do would take in so many areas?
2: No. <laughs> my Simple interest answer. has always been memory okay. and my goal was always and it remains to identify methods for improving memory functioning across populations. That remains that was my initial goal, it remains my goal. I think I've made steps toward that goal. I certainly have not achieved that goal and I don't think that goal will ever be completely achieved. I think there will always be s- more steps to take to maximize our ability to use the memory systems that we have. That being said, I've grown into a position where I work with a number of scientists and a number of fellows, and I have numerous collaborations with other people, they all have research interests as well. So one of my areas of focus is to really help other people grow in their careers. And I think that that is a lot of how I've gotten involved in so many different aspects of clinical rehabilitation. The umbrella, though, is that these are all very important factors in rehabilitating someone or helping someone rehabilitate to the best of their ability, to help them become um, the best person that they can actually be. So whether you talk about fatigue or depression or culture, all of that impacts our ability to benefit from our rehabilitation system so as a as an example we could take culture my direct interest has never been in culture but I have two scientists who are very interested in culture and I really think that scientists should pursue their true interests because that's when they're really going to flourish and have the biggest impact so we've worked together to try to figure out how to look at culture and look at the influence of culture on rehabilitation think about how clinicians should be looking at culture to help them help someone who might be of a different culture flourish within an american system and that's really the that really has been the focus some of that has included memory almost all of it has included cognition Mm -hmm. because the folks that work for me are generally people who focus on cognition in some way shape or form but they do everything really does overlap. It always has a relationship. A different example might be fatigue. There's a very there's an intimate relationship between fatigue and cognition. People who are fatigued have poorer cognition. Generally the disorders that result in impaired cognition also have fatigue accompanying them. So it's a very it's a very intricate relationship that we're trying to pull apart a little bit to be able to best treat both conditions and maximize someone's everyday functioning.
1: So, I just imagine your team meetings being like people throwing out ideas after idea after <laughs> idea. I don't even know how you, how you keep track of them, but give me an idea of how, give me an idea of how the, um, the cycle is for you. Like somebody from your group says, you know, culture might have something to do with rehabilitation. And, so, and how does that go from an idea sitting around a table uh, to actual getting some money to study it and then study it?
2: that's a great question ideas pop out all the time and we have several different team meetings depending on the topic so there are several different teams that comprise the big team so there are a lot of team meetings that occur throughout the week and there are a lot of ideas that just pop up sometimes randomly usually the first step is we determine whether or not we have data existing data where we can look at a question so if someone says, as an example, this has happened This happened in the past, we have a memory rehabilitation protocol called the story memory technique that we've been testing for years here. We modified here. We've been testing it for years. And we have a lot of data showing its efficacy in MS and TBI. We are now collecting data in aging, and we think it's helpful. So what we're doing is looking at the efficacy of that technique. But in order to do that, you see that some people don't benefit, most people benefit, but there is a small group of people that don't benefit. So that leads to the question as to why. Hmm. In an MS sample, one of the ideas was that, well, maybe it's processing speed. We know that people with MS have slowed processing speed. Maybe processing speed has an impact on whether or not they can, the person with MS can benefit from the memory rehabilitation protocol. So we went back and we looked at the memory rehabilitation data, the data on the story memory technique. We had an assessment of processing speed. Mm. And we looked at the influence of performance on that measure, on their ability to benefit from the rehabilitation protocol. And what we found was that people with impaired processing speed were not showing benefit. Mm. And people with intact processing speed showed tremendous benefit. So that led to a whole other study that was submitted to the National MS Society was funded and it has now just concluded we're about to take a look at the data and that study looked at an intervention for processing speed with processing speed as the primary outcome but then we're also looking at performance on memory tests as a more distal outcome so if you improve someone's processing speed do you improve their memory so that just came from an idea that was generated and it developed a whole additional line of research. And now we have a line of research that really looks at processing speed and was taken in a whole other direction by one of our scientists, who was previously one of our fellows, and came in with fresh ideas and decided to look at the role of eye tracking in processing speed. So it's a whole other line of research in MS.
1: So things keep leading to other things. Yeah. One thing leads to another. (laughs) And then how, again, going back to the whole circle of life of, uh, of research, so you get an idea... Sometimes you have data that you can back it up with uh, that's already in the, in the vault. Um, how do you get it funded? Like what happens next then?
2: So usually what we do is we take a look at the data that we have and we try to answer initial aspects of the question. Rarely can you answer the whole question, but you can answer aspects of it. From that point on, we then decide if that pilot data is enough to be able to submit a larger grant based on that data. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. If it is, we go ahead and we submit the grant and see where, see where it goes. If it's not, we have a number of different options. So there are some organizations that have pilot grant programs, like the National MS Society, the New Jersey Commission on TBI Research, where you can submit a pilot study for sometimes $75,000, sometimes $50,000, those are invaluable because that really gives a scientist an opportunity to collect data on a hunch. Right. Sometimes they work out and sometimes they don't. If they work out, then you have strong data where you could submit a larger research grant and really answer the question you wanted to answer. If they don't work out, then you know that you were wrong, but you didn't waste you know, three hundred thousand dollars answering <laughs> right. that question it was just a smaller pot of money so that's one one way to go the other Avenue is through philanthropy so hmm. there are people who have been very generous to Kessler Foundation in supporting pilot research studies and in trying to facilitate our work and our ability to submit for those larger grants you can't get a large grant without pilot funding. So that philanthropy is essential to us being able to have the impact that we have.
1: Do those, that philanthropy, does it, What is what does that look like? Is that an individual person? Is that a, is that a foundation? How does that?
2: It's usually, the through my experience, it's usually been individual people. Mm-hmm. So individuals have either met michelle our development officer Mm -hmm. or roger our ceo through another avenue or through philanthropic donations in the past Mm -hmm. and they have voiced an interest in some of the work that we're doing and michelle or roger connect them with the scientists that might be doing something that that person is interested in funding so in the past that's how that philanthropy has worked for me
1: and you've been pretty successful What's the, what's the secret that, that, you, that you do so well with, with raising money?
2: I don't know if there's a secret. No? I feel, like, <laughs> I feel like there are a lot of things that go into success. I don't know how best to answer that question. I, I mean, I work hard, but at the same time, I have a great team. And I think that that is critical that I have a great group of people around me that will tell me when I'm wrong (laughs) and will challenge me to be better but also support me when we're trying to accomplish a goal and we really work together to accomplish that goal.
1: Is it it an uncomfortable place in your career? Not in the timeline of your career but in the career of a scientist who's doing research. How uncomfortable is it to be like living off, living off of grant money? Like, okay, we, it's, it's like you got to spend, it's, it's like if you're a freelancer, like you spend part of your time working, but you spend the other part of your time trying to market yourself to get more jobs. Is that an, is that an unusual way to live? Or do you feel that at all?
2: Not in this environment. Mm-hmm. We have a great environment here where our board is very supportive of the work that we do and if we don't have a big grant at one point in time we're not going to lose our jobs that's, <laughs> well, that's just not the way it works it. here yes. in some in some organizations it does work that way yeah at the same time that i think that comfort allows the scientists to really pursue what they're interested in and what they're passionate about and that passion really drives success because that is essential to being able to write a good application, talk about that application and support that application. It takes a tremendous amount of time and energy to write a research grant and a passion for what you're doing really provides that energy. It comes through, I bet, in your application. I think it comes through. Yeah,
1: I bet it does. Uh, You mentioned earlier um, just another, the, the TBI model system. I just want to check in on that just for a second
0: before we go on. To, I want to talk about some of your research um, specifically. The TBI model system, just
1: explain that to us a little bit here at Kessler. It's, it's, a, it's a national organization, right. correct?
2: The TBI model system is a network of rehabilitation centers it's funded by the National Institute on Disability, Independent Living, and Rehabilitation Research. So we call it, termed NIDILR. NIDLER funds 16 centers across the nation to, and they're centers that have been identified as center of, centers of excellence in terms of the clinical care they provide, as well as excellence in the research that they conduct. So there are, there are two parts to a TB, any one TBI model system, and that's exceptional clinical care and exceptional research. So our partner, logically, is Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation. So without Kessler Institute for Rehabilitation, there would not be a model system here. There, the, the excellent clinical care that they provide is essential to the TBI model system that we, ha- we have equally as important is the record of exceptional research that we have conducted over the years in traumatic brain injury. So those two factors are combined, and that's how we submit our TBI model system. The The process is a competitive grant process that happens every five years. We have to write a grant that demonstrates both of those characteristics, exceptional clinical care and a strong environment to be able to conduct cutting-edge research. Within the application, we propose research projects and collaborations with other centers. In the end, after the grant submittal process and review process, there have been 16 centers that are selected, and those centers each conduct their own research, obviously continue with their clinical care, but we also all contribute to a national database of persons who have had traumatic brain injury. We follow those people from the time they're injured through their inpatient rehabilitation, and then we follow up with them one year later, five years later, and then every five years thereafter. And we contribute to this national database to be able to look at the long-term trajectory of patients who have traumatic brain injury. So that database now has over 20,000 cases in it. It's been ongoing since 1987, Hmm. and there have been different centers involved over the years, and right now the 16 centers are across the nation. We meet twice a year in Washington DC. We do collaborative work where we work together on certain projects, but we also do independent work. We all have our own projects ongoing that are part of that TBI model system.
1: And is there any not to put you on the spot, but all those years is there are there any outcomes that you can point to to say here's something that came out of this? Cuz it sounds like a you know, a, a brilliant idea as far as Getting a lot of people involved, sharing the wealth, sharing the knowledge—it seems like you know the perfect sort of scientific uh, exercise.
2: There are there are several studies. Some of the res- the practices that occur within rehabilitation hospitals are direct are a direct result of the research that was done within T- a T- the TBI model system program. In addition, some of our work that we've done specifically here has advanced the work that we're doing in cognitive rehabilitation. So as an example, I mentioned the story memory technique earlier. Mm -hmm. That was this site-specific project, the project that occurred only at Kessler Foundation, in our 2007 to 2012 model system. So through that project, we demonstrated that the story memory technique was effective in persons with traumatic brain injury. Subsequent to that, we translated it to Spanish, we distributed it, and we continue to distribute it to clinicians across the world. It's translated to Chinese as well now, and we have some other translations in progress. So all of the work in tbi really originated from that for the story memory technique really originated from that tbi model system but then there are numerous other studies that go on on a daily basis where collaborators from different centers are working together to answer questions related to culture to aging to morbidity mortality um, gender issues there are a lot of different studies that continue to be ongoing that have an impact on clinical care
1: Now, I don't want to miss this. Um, We mentioned the story technique uh, several times. Just a short definition of what it is so people know what you're talking about. So
2: the modified story memory technique is a 10-session memory rehabilitation program where people come in and they learn techniques to facilitate new learning in memory. In that program, they learn to use context and imagery to help them learn information across 10 sessions. And what we've shown in both MS and TBI is that it's very effective in improving new learning and memory both in the clinic on our objective neuropsychological tests as well as on measures of everyday life we've also shown data imaging data that show the changes that happen at the level of the brain from before to after treatment and what we've demonstrated is that the brain's the, the manner in which the brain processes and remembers information is different after treatment as compared with before treatment.
1: So it improves. It, it, the brain... Well, I, I well, said improve, but... You said improve. Yeah,
2: right. I said improve. But in terms of this, the patterns of cerebral activation or the way that the brain is functioning, what we're looking at is not necessarily improvement, but more changes in the areas of the brain that are active when the person is learning and remembering new information. So what we're showing is that after treatment, there are more brain areas that are active in learning and remembering information, and those are brain areas that support the learning and memory
1: process. So, so, so
2: let me give you an example.
1: Yes, please. Let me I give you an example. And tell me an like, example of what this technique is, Yeah okay. right? Okay.
2: So in the first four sessions, someone learns imagery, and they learn how to use imagery to learn verbal information. If you think about your daily life, what we typically do, we communicate in words, and we remember words and sentences. We rarely have to remember images. But there's a whole part of our brain that's dedicated to learning to to processing images, and we really don't make use of that area of the brain the way we could. So what we teach people to do is take verbal information and create a visual image. What we've shown is that from before to after treatment, areas that are used to process and remember visual images become more active. So we're engaging an additional area of the brain in learning verbal information. And that's helping people to learn that information better.
1: So you get this, that's the story part. So you get people to tell a story in their head about what they're trying to remember.
2: What we're actually doing is we're giving people a story Mm. and we're asking them to visualize that story to help them remember it that's the first part is they're just given a story and they're taught to create mental images that go with that story to help them remember it rather than just remembering the words and the sentences picture these images and remember those images that's the first part in the second part that's the context part the second part we give them words and we tell them to create the story So that they're now creating a context around unrelated information. So they're putting the unrelated information together in one context. Then they're asked to use the imagery that they already learned and try to visualize that context. And that's how it's all put together.
1: And it seems like something that would be useful to anybody.
2: It's absolutely useful to anybody.
1: And do you find that with a lot of your research that it's applicable? And do you do anything with that then do you write a book or do you
2: <laughs> my husband's been trying to get me to write a book for yeah, years i think you should so <laughs> it's very time consuming to write a book <laughs> um, i do i do use it to help my children learn information really? <laughs> i do so the emphasis on the emphasis of my research is really on strategy training mm-hmm. and that is because the literature is very clear that strategy tr- strategies help us learn and remember new information. And there are strategies that we use naturally, such as chunking information. Okay. So that's one of the things that we do, we chunk information together. So a good example is we have a list learning test where we read pe- people a list of 16 words. That's a lot of words, and we want them to remember those words. We don't, what we don't tell them at the outset is that those words are in categories. Hmm. So if they can figure out what the categories are and they can chunk the words together within categories, then they remember that information better than if right. they just try to remember the words. So that's one of those strategies that we actually do, many of us use naturally. Other strategies may be testing. So some of us do this naturally, not all of us, we self test. And in the educational world many teachers give quizzes to try to get people to test themselves it's a very effective way to improve someone's ability to learn information if you test yourself on something you'll remember it better than if you simply repeat it so that's another strategy and we actually have that included in one of our other rehabilitation protocols so there are a lot of strategies out there that have been shown to improve new learning and memory in healthy college students. Mm. A lot of what we have done over the years is we've taken those strategies and we've applied them to rehabilitation populations. So as an example, there's space versus mass learning. Space learning is a strategy to help us remember information and it is the strategy that we have learned about for years when our parents and teachers have told us don't cram for an exam
0: Uh.
2: right (laughs) and we've all made the mistake we've all crammed for the exam and then failed it (laughs) we think we
1: can put it in our short-term memory and it'll all be there when we need it yes
2: well the bottom line is it's much more effective to space out your learning over time so if you have an exam on friday study on sunday on monday on tuesday on wednesday on thursday and you'll be ready on friday if you study on Thursday night, you're not going to remember as much information. It's ro- The findings in the literature are robust. Ma- a spe- a spaced out learning really helps. Oh. However, what we don't do is we don't take those findings and apply them to people who really do need to improve their learning and memory in order to function. Right. And that's what we've done through our research over the past 20 years, is mm-hmm. we've taken those strategies, we've tested them in people with MS, people who have TBI, who have learning and memory deficits. And then once we found out that they are still in, in, they are still effective in those populations, we've then incorporated them into cognitive rehabilitation protocols. And now we're trying to teach people how to use those strategies.
1: Nice. Let me, let me ask about a specific, a um, couple of specific grants uh, that, I, that are recent, uh, recent as far as when this was recorded um, in July of 2019. Uh, you got a grant in May for five hundred and ninety-eight thousand dollars to study, and I'll read the title: Longitudinal Change in Cognition and Hemo Hemo Hemodynamics in Individuals with Spinal Cord Injury. Now, let me, first part of that question is, is that a lot of money for a study or is it a medium amount? Give me an idea of, you know, if over half a million dollars, it feels like a lot of money to you.
2: That's always a lot of money to me. Okay, good, good. (laughs) So to me, yes, that's a lot of money.
1: (laughs) Okay. So so tell me what the study is. Um,
2: So we have a line of work in cognition and spinal cord injury. And
1: I'll point out that it's about spinal cord injury, which is outside of, you know, what you're focus what you allegedly focus on we know you focus on many things now but go so ahead.
2: spinal cord injury is largely looked upon as a physical injury and it is a physical injury but what many people don't think about is spinal cord injury has a long term impact on cognition and that's what we're starting to identify in this line of work that was initiated i would guess about 7 or 8 years ago in spinal cord injury there are cognitive changes in persons who have spinal cord injury they show some memory deficits, they often show deficits in processing speed, and those deficits in cognition have a significant impact on everyday life, on the ability to maintain employment, the ability to engage in social situations, the ability to run a household, they do have an impact on everyday life. So once those areas of cognitive deficit have been identified, there are two questions. One is where they come from, why do these individuals who presumably had an injury to the spinal cord and not the brain, why are they showing these cognitive deficits? And then the second question is, well, what do we do about it? How can we help them? And we've started attacking both of those questions simultaneously. So this grant looks specifically at cognitive changes over time and the relationship between the cerebrovascular system and cognition. So there are differences in the hemodynamic response in persons who have spinal cord injury. And those differences have been shown, or we are showing them now, to have an impact on cognition. So that's what that grant is about. And what we're doing at this point is we're following patients with spinal cord injury now six to eight years after their initial cognitive assessment. And we're looking at that relationship as time goes on and looking at the impact of cognition over time from that initial injury.
1: And I'm going to skip around for a second because what you just said made me think, wow, your research goes in many places. Um, And one of the things I read about was aging, that people with MS, people with um, spinal cord injuries, people with TBI might be... We're looking into, or you're looking into whether they're aging, their brain is aging faster? Is that? Tell me about that for a second.
2: That's a, it's a really complicated question. What you have is a disease or an injury that has an impact on cognition. And we know that that happens in these folks who have MS, who have traumatic brain injury. But you also have the normal influence of aging. We know, and we've known for years, that as we age, our cognition declines, It starts at age 30. It declines very slowly, (laughs) very, very slowly. But over time, there is a decline in cognitive functioning as due exclusively to aging. So now you take someone who has a neurological illness, such as MS, and you superimpose aging on an already existing neurological illness that has its own progression. And you have a very complicated picture of cognition And it's very difficult to predict what is going to happen in regard to cognitive functioning over time. There is research going on that looks at patients who have MS longitudinally to look at the impact of aging on cognition. But it's very hard to weed out the impact of aging on cognition versus the impact of the progression of the disease on cognition. Mm -hmm. So it's a very interesting question. It's difficult research to do because it requires longitudinal studies. Mm -hmm. And in general, research grants are five years in duration. So in order to do a longitudinal study, you have to have some ability to follow these patients beyond a research grant. But that's work that's ongoing in the field. There's similar work being done in traumatic brain injury. Traumatic brain injury isn't an injury that happens at one point in time. It's not necessarily progressive. But once the traumatic brain injury occurs, there could be some worsening of cognitive symptoms over time. In other people, cognitive symptoms get much better over time. And what determines which trajectory one person takes versus another is re- remains unclear. But then you're also superimposing aging on that and the impact of, of aging on cognition itself.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So the, it's a very complicated question that... The answers are basically, for the most part, still unknown, but there is progress being made slowly but surely.
1: Hmm. Uh, Let me ask you about another grant that's even uh, more recent. Uh, NIH, the National Institutes of Health, gave you – and I know this is a lot of money – $1.8 million, a little over that – and it was really about, I'll sum it up, and then you can tell me what the real story is. You can fix it for me. <laughs> but the, the, improving the quality of life for people living with MS, right? So what is, what is that study about?
2: So this study looks at a different cognitive rehabilitation protocol to improve someone's overall everyday functioning and their cognition in everyday life. Cognition has a huge impact on quality of life.
1: So and by cognition, I, we've been talking about it, but by cognition, you mean just the way we take in information, right?
2: Thinking, okay. processing, and remembering information.
1: And people with MS, t- uh, TBI, uh, spinal cord injury may have a deficit in that area.
2: Right, they have deficits in that area, but in different aspects of cognition, and as well as to different, to a different extent, depending on the injury or the illness, as well as how progressed the disease is, and other. Factors,
1: and I assume it's like almost an infinite number of deficits you could have. It's, it's, it's or is it?
2: It is. Cognition has five main areas of functioning.
1: <laughs> Just whittled it down to five. For no, me. no, 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 <laughs> no.
2: That's five main areas, but within those areas, they each have subdivisions. So, as an example, t- attention is one area, but you have sustained attention you have divided attention, you, you know, you have all different okay. aspects of attention. So you, there are a lot of areas within those five areas that it really sprouts out. So there, cognition is, is a huge area.
1: So tell me what the grant is about then.
2: So the grant is designed to look at the efficacy of another cognitive rehabilitation protocol that we refer to as STEM. STEM stands for strategy based techniques to enhance memory. So this is also a 10-session treatment protocol that teaches patients three different strategies designed to enhance their memory functioning or maximize their ability to learn and remember new information. So the three techniques are the generation effect or self-generation, and that's when we come up with information to remember as opposed to someone saying, remember this. Mm -hmm. Self-testing testing ourselves on information that we're trying to learn rather than simply repeating the information over and over again or reading it repeatedly, Mm. and then spaced learning. So teaching ourselves to space out our repetitions of information so that we can remember it better than if it were just several repetitions that are chunked together. So this grant is a randomized clinical trial where we are assigning people to either a treatment group or a placebo control group. They undergo 10 sessions of the treatment, and then we look at differences after the intervention period between those who have undergone the treatment and those who have not in their ability to learn and remember information. But in addition to just looking at neuropsychological measures of memory, we're also looking at self-report measures of memory in daily life. So how is your memory and cognition functioning in your daily life? Is it having an impact on other areas of functioning, such as your ability to maintain a household or your ability to drive or your ability to maintain employment? How are you doing in terms of depression and anxiety? How is your overall quality of life? So we get as much information as possible on a person's everyday life. And we get that information from both the person with the injury that underwent the treatment as well as a significant other to try to get a Mm. little bit more of an objective point of view. They're biased as well, but they're not quite as biased as the person who actually underwent the treatment. And then as a third level of outcome, we're also looking at imaging. So we're looking at how the treatment changes a person's changes the way the brain processes and remembers information from before to after treatment.
1: So by imaging, you're talking like MRI?
2: MRI. Functional so, MRI. Yes.
1: So run me through that for a second. So what does that involve? Putting somebody in the scanner right. and then testing them?
2: Right. Someone goes in an fMRI scanner, which many of us have experienced in the context of our own healthcare. care. But typically what people have experience with is an MRI. An MRI takes pictures of your brain what your brain looks like, identifies tumors or bleeds or anything else that may be going on in your brain. In these studies, we do functional MRI. What functional MRI does is it takes images of the brain while it's performing a task. Hmm. So we have someone doing a memory task while they're in the scanner, and we're taking images of what their brain is actually doing during that task. And then we're analyzing the difference in how the brain is learning and remembering information before treatment as compared with after treatment. So we're looking at changes at the level of the brain from the treatment itself.
1: And is there any, and I'm going to far and wide here on you, I'm sorry, is there any application in people with Alzheimer's or dementia? Is that part, is that is it possible to spread to that those areas?
2: It's definitely possible, and that's something that we're looking at now. We actually have an ongoing study in... The aging population, as well as those who've been diagnosed with mild cognitive impairment, which is a, a precursor to Alzheimer's disease, although it's not a definite precursor. So not everyone with mild cognitive impairment progresses to Alzheimer's disease. Some go some just continue to age. Others are later diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. So we're looking at those two groups and we're looking at their ability to benefit from the story memory technique in regard to their ability to learn and remember new information as well as their functioning in daily life and then we're also looking at imaging neuroimaging in that group as well to see how their brain changes from before to after treatment so it definitely has potential application and we're collecting the data now to be able to definitively say that it is indeed effective in this population i anticipate it will be
1: Hmm. and how do you is is the brain the, the techniques you're teaching people is, are they techni- – is it retraining the brain or is it repairing the brain? Do you have a handle on that?
2: That's a great question. It is really helping the brain use its resources more effectively. So I don't – I do use the term retraining. It's not repairing. Mm-hmm. I do use the term retraining sometimes. But when you really look at the imaging data that we've been acquiring – what we're doing is we're utilizing different brain resources that were not previously utilized to maximize their ability to learn and remember new information.
1: So things you probably could have or should have been using for memory. But you weren't. That you weren't. And you're teaching people how to use them now, mm-hmm. those tools that they still have. Um, we could talk all day about all the research you're doing, so I'm just going to leave those as the highlights. <laughs> um, let me ask a question, though, about that. The studies, you exist on studies. That's right. what you do. You collect data. Is that one of the hardest parts, is, is getting volunteers?
2: Getting volunteers is very challenging. It's the The research is time-consuming, so we're asking people to really donate their time to help us learn new information and help us help them to function better in their daily lives we do reimburse participants for their time so they do get paid for their participation in individual research studies their time is really invaluable in terms of our ability to do our work we can't do our work without our volunteers so we're very grateful to those that do volunteer for our research studies and we really encourage people to do it because while it's essential to the work that we're doing the folks that participate in our research studies really do enjoy it. They, In many cases, they get treatment, and they're not paying for that treatment. They're actually being right. paid to get the treatment. Right. But over and above that, they very often report very positive experiences and a feeling that they're really helping themselves and helping others that are struggling with the same medical issues that they're struggling with. So it really is a great experience for those that have MS or TBI or even healthy controls. We're always looking for healthy individuals who can come in and let us assess them because we need to compare persons who have MS, persons who have traumatic brain injury, to persons that are the same age, the same education, but don't have those those challenges,
1: and I guess part of the difficulty is we're here with one branch here in North Jersey, so it, you've, you've got a pool of people that no one's going to come from California to do right. this. So you have to do that. Well, let me say this about that uh, KesslerFoundation.org on the homepage, top right, you'll see a button that uh, you can volunteer, you can join a study. So if you're if you're local to this area, um, that would be really helpful. Um, let's talk about there's a, there's a term in academia: publish or perish. Um, is that the same? You've published a lot of papers in I your have. day. Is, is that like one of your, how do you treat the, the publishing piece of this, of the research?
2: As you know, I do a lot of mentorship, so I work with a lot of scientists and fellows. The first step is pilot data collection and then the grant writing, right? You have to have the money to be able to do the work. But the data is useless if you don't publish it. And that's one of the things that I really emphasize when I'm working with folks. And even in conducting my own research, you have to publish your data. Because if you don't, you might as well have never conducted the study because no one knows about it. So I never really think, I know people talk about publish or perish. I never really think about that because I think the bigger issue is that you've wasted all of that time and effort and money if you don't publish your results.
1: Right, right.
2: In terms of publications or projects that I've been particularly proud of, I would have to say that I've completed and published through publication. So I don't consider something completed until the work is published. I would say that I've completed two large randomized clinical trials, both on the story memory technique, one in traumatic brain injury and one in multiple sclerosis. And that's the work that I'm particularly proud of. The reason for that is that a randomized clinical trial of that size, when you're talking about roughly 100 participants, is a tremendous amount of work. And the work that we're doing, cognitive rehabilitation, you're not just giving someone a medicine, you're bringing them in and you're working with them on a biweekly basis to help them improve their functioning. So it really is just a tremendous amount of man hours to get that work done. And then after you actually collect the data, analyzing the data and writing the data up and getting it to the point of publication, and both of those large clinical trials were published in very high-impact journals that really have had an influence on the field. So I would say at this point in time, those are the two studies that I'm most proud of. I hope that the answer will change over time because I have, you know, other studies that have been recently completed that I'm at the point of actually analyzing the data now. Obviously, I have this new work that I'm currently collecting data for. And I hope that I can say the
1: same of those studies
2: when we talk five years from now. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I hope it's shorter than five years. <laughs> um, what, what's, what's ahead then? What, like, what do you think we'll be studying 10 years from now? What, what will you, not me of course, but what will you be studying?
2: I think we will continue to be looking at ways to improve cognition and memory. And that's because humans are never satisfied. We never get to the point where we're like, okay, my memory's good enough, or okay, I feel good enough. We always want to feel better. And I think even as we make progress, and we are making progress, I think even as we continue to make progress, we will always want to do better. So I hope that we're doing more of what we're doing now, but from a, perhaps a more advanced perspective. Hopefully we will know more about what works and what doesn't work, and we'll be able to focus our efforts a little bit better and maybe incorporate technology into our protocols a little bit more. I would like to eventually be able to provide a clinician with a toolbox of techniques to improve memory that they can select from the toolbox and work with their patients if something works they can doesn't work they could try something different so that they feel like they have an army of techniques that they can use to help someone's memory improve
1: perfect thanks so much nancy i appreciate you being here
0: thank you Stay tuned for tips for improving your loved one's situation and your own memory. For more information about Kessler Foundation, go to KesslerFoundation.org. That's K-E-S-S-L-E-R-F-O-U-N-D-A-T-I-O-N.org. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Probably heard this. You have a patient who has dementia, they live at home, their family can't care for them anymore, so they move them to an assisted living facility, right? It happens all the time. Very often people will say, Well, they, we moved them there and they got so much worse. Mm. They didn't get worse, though, because they have to learn all oh, new things. Right. Right. So their refrigerator's in a different place, mm-hmm. and their bathroom's mm-hmm. in a different place, and they're in an entirely new environment, so they look like they've gotten worse but nothing has changed other than they have to learn all this new stuff and that's what they can't do. They can't learn new information.
0: Hmm.
2: So, you know, I've, I've talked to people about that and they say, well, what am I supposed to do? Am I supposed to keep them home? And the answer is no, you can't keep them home. It's a safety issue. Yeah. Right. But if you could bring their furniture, mm. put their underwear in the same place, mm. put their shorts in the same place so they know they still have those old memories to rely on, you know, help them rely on as much as they possibly mm. can mm. without changing things. Like it really it's the learning that's the problem. It's the memory is not nearly as much of an issue. So you know, people blame everything on memory. Oh, I can't remember, I can't remember, but in a lot of cases you never learned it. Hmm. So like even when you meet a new person you have a you have a name and then you walk away and you come back and oh my god, I can't remember his name, my memory's so bad. You didn't really pay attention enough right. to learn their name.
1: <laughs> Alec taught me from your group, right? Alex from your group. Uh-huh. When I first got here he was the friendliest, nicest guy, always saying hi to me. And I was like, hi, you. <laughs> and he'd be like, hey, Rob. I'd be like, yeah, buddy. <laughs> and finally, I confessed up one day. I was like, I don't know your name. I know you told me your name at some point, and you call me my, by my name every time you see me, but I just don't know your name. And then he said to me, well, one thing I learned, and I didn't realize it's time that he was working for you and into memory, is like if you try to say, I try to say a person's name three times when I uh-huh. meet them, and that helps me remember their name.
2: So i try it does to the other thing that. you can do if in some cases it's pretty obvious like there's some association between their face or their the way they dress and their name
0: mm. Mm. if
2: you can do that then you have a a cue yeah. to help you like if their nose is big and their name is bob or something then, <laughs> like, i mean don't share that with them but if yeah. you you can yeah. kind of use that to help you remember their names oh, that's good but it's yeah it's a matter of paying attention like if you say yeah. their name three times you're really paying attention yeah
1: yeah, yeah.
2: People, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of the Memory Palace, where you, if you're trying to remember a bunch of items, if you walk into, you you picture yourself walking into your house, and you put each item in a place, Mm. because your house is something that's very overlearned. Right. So, okay, I walked in, I put this on the coffee table, and then I put this on the chair, and then I put this on the kitchen table, Mm. and then all you have to do to remember the items is to immensely close your eyes and walk back through your house, and you'll remember them better.